0: Well, thank you, Sarah, for reading to us. Let's keep Mark chapter 2 open, if you would, and we'll pray with the the Bible open before us. Father, we ask that from this very familiar story that uh, most of us have heard many times over many years... Very familiar, but we pray that we would hear something fresh from you or it would strike us in a fresh way today. And we pray that by your spirit's working, it would make a difference in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the way Sarah read that last sentence of the reading with a heavy emphasis on never. We've never seen anything like this. That was the conclusion of this episode we're looking at in Mark's Gospel this morning. And it was said, was it not, in praise of God, with a sense of wonder at what people had seen. The man comes before Jesus, paralyzed, and then in full view of everyone, he gets up completely healed and leaves carrying the mat which he'd been lying on, motionless, only seconds earlier. We've never seen anything like this Now, of course, that is the sort of comment that might easily be made with scepticism today. The logic might run like this. We've never seen anything like this, so we rather doubt that it happened. But it's important for us to remember, just as we start and set our our course on this uh, little passage here, that the writer of this account is claiming that it is fact, not fantasy, Uh, I don't think I've shown my working on this, but it's, it's well attested that Mark has compiled his gospel from the Apostle Peter's eyewitness material. And he certainly wants to stress the eyewitness nature of his sources in this passage. One of you noticed how he reports that the man walked out in full view of them all in verse 12. In other words, he's saying, look, it wasn't done behind closed doors, wasn't done with smoke and mirrors, Everybody saw what happened, and it's worth the saying, it's not a story that's grown with the telling over hundreds of years. It was witnessed and reported at a time not long after the event itself. This actually happened, Mark is saying to us. Well, let's go over the facts again from verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Of course, people were amazed by the event that followed itself, as we would all be if it happened one day, at a gathering like ours at church, nobody would forget the day they took the roof off during the service, would they? I suppose it'd be amazing enough if there was such a huge crowd uh, attending a service or listening to a sermon that you couldn 't even get into the building were packed inside like in, inside but there 's a, a queue outside would be pretty amazing wouldn 't it but then when People are listening inside. Suddenly dust starts falling on the preacher's notes. And then a, a shaft of light comes through the ceiling. Then there's some more dust. And now we hear tiles being lifted off. Next thing you know, there are faces peering in through the hole. And then, would you believe it, a stretcher is being lowered down. And you got back from the service for lunch and uh, encountered people after the event who hadn't been there. You wouldn't wait to be asked, How was church? <laughs> oh, same as usual, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, the Church of England, Amen. You'd say straight away, You'll never guess what happened today as you rushed it at all. And you'd still be telling people about it um, when you were 80, the day the roof was lifted off. So the event is a complete one off. It's too bizarre to be dreamt up. But let me invite you to try and analyze it a little further. What was it that struck them as so amazing? Well, here's the first thing. It's surprise number one, and it's Jesus' diagnosis. This man has been lowered through the roof. It would have been a white-knuckle ride if ever there was one. Only if he was paralyzed, maybe he wasn't able to hold on for grim life. There he was, utterly defenseless on his mat. And what happened in verse 5? Just have a look. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know what happened at that point, but you half imagine the disciples wanting to whisper a quiet word in Jesus' ear, don't you? Jesus, I know it's been a long day. I know you were really into your sermon. I know it's tough when they jump the queue like this, but Jesus, look at him. Look at his legs, Jesus. Now, obviously, it wasn't that Jesus failed to notice his disability or that he didn't care. He was passionately concerned with human suffering whenever he encountered it. What Jesus is saying is that this man's sin needed even more urgent treatment than his physical condition. And try and think around it. Why is that a surprise to us? Well, it's a surprise to us, possibly because we bought into a view of the world in which God doesn't figure very much. If we relegate God from involvement in our world, then forgiveness from God doesn't seem like a big deal to us. I think we understand the importance of forgiveness on a human level. Much conversation about the moment about our fractured relationships, isn't there, in the country. Hemingway's got a short story about a Spanish father who longed to be reconciled with his son who'd run away to Madrid and the father put an ad in the paper, El Liberal. Paco, it said, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Failing to realize, as he put the ad in, that Paco is actually quite a common name in Spain. And then when he goes to the square, there are 800 sons waiting for their fathers. Forgiveness, it matters to us. It's between people, doesn't it? Families, friends, and so on. But we don't so easily think of forgiveness from God being a significant issue. And I wonder if that's just because with God out of sight and out of mind, we don't think of our sin being directed against God personally. Or if we had a keen sense of it in the past, it's just faded from view in our lives. We define sin simply in terms of how we treat each other. I try not to do anyone any harm. It would be a common British creed, wouldn't it? And if God comes into the picture at all, we might shrug our shoulders and say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but surely I'm good enough for God is the subtext. We probably wouldn't say that, would we? I know I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. Well, if we dare to say, surely I'm good enough for God, the question is, how good is good enough? I sometimes used to invite students, if I had this conversation with them, to do a bit of um, maths or counterintuitive math. Just suppose I am really good, I'd say to them, 90% perfect. I match God's standards 90% of the time. In exam marks, that would probably be a first or an A star, very impressive. The problem is, it's the 10% that's significant. Actually, if I rebel against God at any point at all, it means that I'm not, in fact, say, 10% a rebel, I'm actually 100% a rebel. Let me try and explain why. Well, it's because when it suits me, I will happily push God out of my life and live as I please. And really, it's only by coincidence that the way I choose to live just happens to overlap with God's way 90% of the time. That really is incidental. It's not deliberate. In fact, I am 100% a rebel by nature. And if we could only see how serious that is, as soon as it dawns on me that God made me, that I'm actually just a tenant living in his universe, that he's got the right to run my life, and we can extend it. Not only is he my landlord, he is my lover as well, in the sense that he's come after me in the person of Jesus Christ, because he longs to know me. Then think how great the personal offense is of our rebellion is against that sort of a God. You can add to it, actually, because the Bible is clear that that situation won't go on forever. For the moment, to be forgiven may not seem that big a deal. But to be personally out of step with God will one day be seen for the disaster that it is. God won't let us rebel forever, you see. A day is coming after this earthly life when if our sin isn't forgiven... It will have to be punished forever. That's a day when God will ratify our decision to exclude him from our lives by excluding us from his presence and exposing us to all the pain that that punishment involves. And there is no fate that even comes close to that suffering. And it's all the things that might mar our lives now. The disability of this paralyzed man, sickness, disease... Stress, poverty, above all these, you and I need forgiveness. But it is a shocking diagnosis. Let me move on. A second surprise. Jesus' claim. What surprised the Pharisees? Actually, it wasn't that sin was so important, but that Jesus thinks he can do the forgiving. Let's look at verses 6 to 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, "Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So you see, their problem, in claiming to forgive sins, Jesus is claiming to do something only God can do. And I don't think anybody has ever explained this as clearly as C.S. Lewis did. I hope you'll put up with an extended quotation. He put it like this. One part of Jesus' claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we've heard it so often we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. C.S. Lewis carries on. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really preposterous. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money. And I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announces that he forgives you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's monies? Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned the person chiefly offended in all offences. That's brilliantly put, isn't it? When Jesus forgives sin, it's a shocking claim. He's saying that he is the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. So it's a monumental claim. People sometimes try to say Jesus is a good teacher and then leave it at that. But that's the one thing he can't be. It's been very well put in that stark alternative. He's mad, bad, or God. He can't simply be a good man and a great teacher. Either he's much less, he's mad or bad, or he's much more than a great human being. He's God. So we mustn't try and just patronize Jesus as if we can fob him off with faint praise. Oh, he's a great teacher. He's not left that option open to us with this amazing claim to be God. The question is then, can he back up that claim? So let's move on to a third and final surprise in the passage, Jesus' authority. Let me reread verses 8 to 12. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, actually, if you wanted evidence of Jesus' supernatural powers, then the hint's there already in the way he reads the Pharisees' minds. They've only been thinking that Jesus' claim is outrageous. They haven't actually said anything in a dialogue between him and them. Lo and behold, suddenly their unspoken thoughts are broadcast for everyone to hear. That must have been pretty uncomfortable for them. But notice how there's absolutely no attempt by Jesus to backtrack... From his claim to forgive sins. He could have agreed with the Pharisees, could he not? Well, of course, they're right. I didn't mean that I can forgive your sins, I mean that God does. Could have said that. Instead, he says, Yes, I can forgive sins. I have authority to forgive sins. And here is how I can prove it I'll heal this paralysis. So he's saying, look, I'll do what no one can deny has happened in the visible realm, a physical miracle, to show that I can also do something in the invisible realm, forgive sins. And there and then, the paralytic ends up doing what Jesus commands. Muscles which had atrophied through disuse suddenly become strong without any course of physiotherapy or anything. Up he got... And off he went. That is Jesus' authority. When he speaks, amazing things happen. Uh, No accident that here for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus uses an authority title to describe himself. He is the son of man. And yes, on one level that tells us that he is a human being, a man. But Also, it tells us that he's more than human. The Son of Man, in the Old Testament, in Daniel's vision, is a divine figure worshipped by people all over the world. He's given authority and sovereign power. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So he's human. We'll remember that at this time of year, won't we? The baby in the manger. But much, much more than human. The great son of man figure. That's me, says Jesus. I can pronounce the verdict of the last day on people's lives now. The son of man has authority to forgive sins on earth. If you hear it from me, you can know for sure you're forgiven ahead of the day of judgment. And the physical miracle he did shows it. Now, of course, we've got a much more powerful demonstration of it than anyone did that day. Because we stand this side of the cross of Jesus at death, which we're going to remember at communion, is the reason Jesus can pronounce forgiveness. It means, of course, that it wasn't particularly, and uh, well, it was easy enough for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, but it wasn't easy for him to deliver on that promise. It would uh, not just be a matter of waving a magic wand over our sin and making it disappear. It would, in the end, take him less than three years on to the cross to pay for our sins himself. He took our punishment so that we don't need to take that punishment ourselves if we're trusting in him. And in that sense, he had authority to forgive sins, which he went on to demonstrate further still when he was raised from the dead three days later. Well, no wonder they said that day that they hadn't seen anything like it. What an amazing episode it was. Surprise number one, Jesus' diagnosis that sin is more serious even than tragic disability. Surprise number two, Jesus' claim, that claim to forgive sins, it's a claim to be God. Surprise number three, Jesus' authority. He really can make that claim. I'm sure that the paralytic was as surprised as anyone by it all. But, you know, I wonder if his surprise hasn't grown as the years have passed since the event. What would he say to us if we could just get him in here today for a little testimony and interview him a bit about what had happened? Well, Simon, he might say, it was an amazing day. I agree. I agree. I must say, when I was lying there on that mat and he said those words to me, Your sins are forgiven, I'll admit, at first I just thought, Well, thanks for nothing, Jesus. I wasn't thinking about my sins at all. But then he said I could get up. And I couldn't believe, all of a sudden, I could stand up and walk. I ran out of that building shouting for joy. Simon, I had another 30 or so years of life. I had a family. It was great to be alive and enjoy the normal blessings of life that so many people have. But I have to tell you, Simon, now I've been with Christ for nearly 2,000 years and I realized that what he said about my body being healed was less important, much less important than what he said about my sins being forgiven. That was the greatest blessing of all that he could give me. And I want, as I close, just to ask whether you can echo his testimony at all or the crowd's comments. We've never seen anything like this. I wonder if there's people here today that come to church with a sense of the importance of their sin already. Maybe there's some fresh wrongdoing you're aware of that is on your conscience. Well, that sin can be forgiven. Because Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority to forgive sins on earth. You think he was actually talking there not to the paralytic, but to the Pharisees. How amazing to those that were quibbling and opposed to him. At their point of need, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You can't outsin the grace of God. You'll come to Jesus Christ. He can forgive you. So if you've got something on your conscience, then have dealings with him, please, today. It may be, you see, that some of us actually, we don't come with a burden of sin on our mind. We've just let it all go cold in our thinking. And I want to ask myself and ask you to recapture a sense of amazement, that sense of amazement that the Paralytic man the crowds had. If there's no sense of amazement with us, then it may well mean that we've never really experienced the wonder of forgiveness as the paralyzed man did. Or in a sort of blind sort of practical atheism, we've just quietly forgotten about God and the wonder of sins, even having receded ourselves in the past, that forgiveness. If you can echo it and say, praise God, I know he's got the authority to forgive my sins. Then never, never lose your sense of amazement at what Jesus Christ has done for you. And make sure you thank him today for it. Amen. we rejoice in that wonderful truth of jesus authority to forgive sins to forgive our sins as we prepare for holy communion we look to the cross and we remind ourselves of its glory and of what it cost god's son to forgive us so we stand to sing jesus christ i think upon your sacrifice